Substance abuse knows no boundaries. But for those of us in medicine, it is an occupational hazard and an impairment of our ability to do our jobs. The truth is, substance abuse affects all medical professionals, including physician assistants. You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm PA Lisa DeAndre Linnell, your host. And with me today is Gail Curtis, physician assistant, assistant professor at Wake Forest University School of Medicine, and an advocate for physician assistants struggling with addiction. Today we are discussing physician assistants and substance abuse. What to do if you need help or you know someone who does. Hi, Gail. Welcome to ReachMD. Hi. Thanks for having me. Gail, do physician assistants have a higher risk of addiction compared to the general population? Actually, they don't. What we know is that about 65% of Americans report drinking alcohol, and out of that, about 7% of those are alcoholic, and about 2.5 million people abuse prescription drugs. We know that in the general population, about 10 to 15% of people end up having addiction illness problems. We know from past research that about 15% of physicians have some substance abuse problems. I know there's not a lot of good data on PAs. This is an area that's rich and ripe for some research. It appears that we have about a 10 to 15% risk just as the general population. Now, as PAs in more states gain controlled substance prescription privileges, do you think that these incidences might rise? No, I don't. And that's a very good question. And it's one that when I was working with the legislators in North Carolina to obtain prescriptive privileges for PAs, this came up. And the truth is, we had PAs abusing prescription drugs long before they could ever write for them. And all of the research does not show that having the privileges makes the difference because if someone's going to abuse the drug, they'll just write the prescription whether they are legally allowed to or not. Well, let's talk about the reasons for abuse. What are the most common reasons that PAs and other health professionals fall into addiction? There are the general reasons that everyone has, which is your environment, how you're raised, and also genetics that plays into it for everyone. But on top of that, for medical professionals, and PAs are no different, there is a difference in that there's access to drugs. There are sample cabinets that are around. Most of the time, there's free access to those. People can help themselves. There's a knowledge of pharmaceuticals. So PAs have an uh, idea of what they would like and how to best obtain that. They know how to talk to another health provider to obtain it in a way that would sound credible. There's also the hall consult, which is probably one of the worst things that happens in the medical profession where I run by you in the hall and say, oh, you know, I just had a neck pull from this sucker this weekend. Would you mind just write me a few Vicodin or whatever my drug of choice might be? And then there's really no record of it. And a lot of times providers are hesitant to say no to a colleague. Besides that, there's also just the profession itself and the stress. I mean, we are under a lot of stress providing medical care with less time for patient visits, the expectation that PAs and physicians should have all the answers to the problems, and you're making life or death decisions all the time. So that's a lot of stress. It's a high-stress profession. And then I think lastly, if you look at other reasons why people might choose to abuse drugs, you look at call situations, people being on call, needing to be productive after being on call, working longer hours and looking for that way to keep going. 
So what type of drugs are most often abused by healthcare professionals, and does it depend on what type of medicine they practice? Well, the most abused drug is still alcohol, and that's really not surprising because it is the most widely available, and we're a drinking country. It's hard to go to any social event where there's not alcohol offered or served. It's hard to go to a party and not drink. If you've ever tried that, people will come up to you and ask if, wouldn't you like a drink? So a lot of people that are in recovery talk about carrying around a glass that looks like an alcoholic beverage so that people won't bother them. So that's still the most abused. But after that, you see a lot of polydrug, uh, polysubstance abuse. It's rare to see just an alcoholic these days. So you see prescription medicine is probably the second most likely. And depending on what field you're in, if you happen to be in anesthesia, you see fentanyl is, is a very big problematic drug in that field. And then the other drugs of abuse that you see are similar to the general population, a lot of marijuana, cocaine, and over the past several years, a rise in like OxyContin and OxyCodone. So what specialties have the biggest issues with substance abuse? Interestingly enough, psychiatry and not so surprisingly, anesthesia. But there is also, and probably just because there are more practitioners in this area, there are an awful lot of people who are in general practice as well. Well, addiction in healthcare has a very different set of issues than the general population. And if a PA were to lose their medical license, it could be career-ending for them. Colleagues are really sensitive to this, and it leads to this professional enabling. Help us understand why this happens. I think a big reason why this happens is a lack of understanding of the disease of addiction illness. And so we all want to be helpful. We all don't want to get somebody else in trouble. But what we don't understand is that you're really not helping someone by allowing them to continue in this illness. If we knew that somebody had diabetes or some other quote-unquote medical illness, we would certainly reach out to them, but it's much harder still for people to reach out about this particular illness. I think the questions that people often ask themselves is, well, how do I know if they're drinking too much? Maybe I'm just seeing them this one time drinking too much, or how can I be really sure that there's a problem? Maybe they just took that medicine today for something that I don't know about. And then the biggest one, and, and this is really the biggest one, is, is that people would do it if they could be anonymous. They don't want to have to be named. They don't want to have to say, yes, I'm going to go and tell on my colleague. That is the biggest impediment. And that's why I think some of the programs that do allow for anonymous referrals are helpful. Well, there are laws that require the reporting of an impaired colleague, but these vary by state. Could you give us a general idea of what should be done and what has to be done if you know that a colleague is impaired? Well, I think the first thing goes back to the last thing we were just discussing, and that is to realize that you really are helping the person because these are not bad people who need to get good. These are sick people who need to get well, and they need your help just like a patient would. So I think that's the first thing. After that, I would suggest that someone check and see if there's a program for impaired practitioners in their state. Most states now have one. And if so, you can usually call and talk with them confidentially about your concerns about the person and then choose whether or not you want to go forward with the referral. That takes a little bit of the stress off of making that initial call. Once you start talking to folks at these programs, they can reassure you that it's going to be helpful to the practitioner and that you can sometimes remain anonymous. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm PA Lisa DeAndre Linnell, and I'm speaking with Gail Curtis, physician assistant, assistant professor at Wake Forest University School of Medicine, and an advocate for physician assistants struggling with addiction. We are discussing physician assistance and substance abuse, what to do if you need help or you know someone who does. So, Gail, there are many programs that exist that specifically treat medical professionals affected by substance abuse. Can you discuss these programs? Sure. You can start with very simple things like there are always 12-step programs available everywhere throughout the country many times of the day, and they're free. And there are Caduceus uh, 12-step meetings, which are specifically geared for healthcare professionals. They used to be just for physicians, but now many different types of healthcare professionals, including physicians, dentists, nurses, PAs, nurse practitioners, will all attend these kind of meetings. So that's one thing that's always available. Then there are now a lot of intensive outpatient programs, which are attractive for the professional who is still working. They can go and get their help sometimes at night, sometimes on weekends, but it's more than just individual therapy or a couple of hours a week. And then there are the inpatient programs. And these are usually reserved for people who have failed some of the other attempts. And also medical professionals sometimes need this because PAs and physicians tend to have a little bit stronger denial about their problem than the general public. And so these are programs like Betty Ford or Hazleton, some of the big names that you've heard of in the country, where you actually go and stay after your evaluation for any amount of time varying from one month to as many as six months. And how confidential are these programs? Programs are very confidential. The biggest problem with these programs, especially the inpatient programs, are they're very expensive. And so not everyone can afford to go to these programs. And again, that brings in another part of this issue, which is a lot of states now have scholarships for people to attend these programs, either through their local medical society or if there is a impairment program in their state, often they have some scholarship funds available for that as well. So let's talk about how professionals get into these programs. You spoke earlier about a referral system, which happens in most cases, but how does that work and who does the majority of the referring? Well, you can refer yourself. That doesn't usually happen. It does happen occasionally. I would say most of the time the referral comes from a coworker or a family member. Occasionally it comes from the medical board, and that's kind of an interesting concept because most medical boards in states where there is an impairment program would prefer that the person remain anonymous and get the help that they need. So a lot of times people at the medical board will refer the person over for an evaluation, and that's a way that a lot of people get into the programs. So what happens to the PA who's referred, but the medical board is unaware of their substance abuse issues? Can they stay anonymous if they're in treatment or agree to start treatment? Yes, that's the ideal situation because you have the opportunity to offer this person help and treatment and you have the big incentive that they won't be revealed to the medical board so long as they do the things that are, are, are being asked of, of them by the program. 
you can imagine that most people, when they get referred, if they're not self-referring, are not terribly pleased that they've been referred, and they're very resistant in the beginning. So it's nice to have that big hammer of, well, if you work with us, we won't turn you into the medical board. And so, yes, they can stay anonymous if they agree and work hard at their treatment. Well, under what circumstances is an anonymous referral reported to the medical board? The programs try to work with the provider, the PA, diligently and give them the opportunity, even after perhaps not being compliant to begin with, they will work with them and say, look, you know, you haven't done what you've been asked. You haven't been attending 12-step meetings. You haven't been meeting with your monitor. You haven't been responding to the call for drug screens. You have to do this or we're going to have to break your anonymity. So they have a chance, usually one, sometimes if there's some really good reason, maybe two, but after that, they're told that their anonymity will be broken, and it is. And what happens then? Well, then it becomes the dealings of the medical board. Usually, the medical board would call them in for an interview and would put restrictions on their license or, in some cases, even take their license. And in the unfortunate case that they lose their license, can they get it back? They can get it back. And it's very interesting. I've seen a lot of PAs that have had really bad substance abuse issues get their wake-up call when they lose their license and then decide that treatment really is what they need to do and go back and be very successful later. Now, they won't get their license back immediately, but usually if they're willing to work toward that, they get back involved with the program in the state if there is a recovery program and they're followed for usually three to five years. And they might get a provisional license back during that time if they're working a good program and a free clear license usually later if they continue to do well. Now, are there programs available for PA students, and how are we educating them about substance abuse? Well, that's a great question, and it's such an important thing to do. We are incorporating education into all the PA programs now about addiction, illness, and substance abuse. Here at Wake Forest, we have didactic sessions as well as we send all of our students out to attend a 12-step meeting so that they can see what that's like and hear the stories there and know that that referral source is available. We also have a simulated patient exercise that all of our students go through that where they actually interview a simulated patient who has these issues. And many other programs are doing the same kinds of things as well. Well, thank you, Gail, for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm PA Lisa DeAndre Linnell, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 160, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at ReachMD.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. And thanks for listening.